Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Good morning. Welcome to Renaissance. Listen, before we get started, let's just take a moment to pray together for the city of Las Vegas, uh, for our nation as a whole. Last week, over hundreds of people's lives were changed forever, so it would be pertinent for us to pray for them as the church. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you are the God of comfort. The Bible tells us that you are also the God of peace and that you comfort us in all of our trouble and all of our difficulty, that you truly care for us. Lord, I pray for the people whose, whose worlds forever changed last week, that, that you would give them that comfort and that peace. I pray that they would feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. I pray that the family members of those who were killed or wounded, as they're truly suffering now as well, that they would feel your presence and your peace. And I pray that you would show your people, your church, how we can help them, how we can reach out, how we can care for those in Las Vegas, for those in Texas and Florida who suffered hurricane damage, people all around us in need and in distress, and you use us to bring your relief and show your love. I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, I also pray that you would help us as we study the Bible today, that you would help us to, to know more about who Jesus is, that you would teach us more about yourself and cause us to gain a greater love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here at Renaissance, and we're really glad that you're here, especially if this is your first time. We're excited that you've come and chosen to spend a Sunday morning with us while we worship Jesus. We think that's great. Every week we have new people visiting with us, and every week we open up the Bible and we study it together. And last week, we began a study in the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, underneath the seat around you is a hardback black Bible. You can turn to page 1014 in that Bible. We'll also put the words up on the screens. But before we dive into 1 Peter, I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about angels. Um, why angels, though? Well, for one, Peter mentions angels in his passage. And two, angels are not something that we talk about a lot in the church. And, and I think that we probably have a greater understanding of angels from CBS and Touched by an Angel than we actually do from the Bible itself. And we know that if we're to learn spiritual principles and spiritual truths, truths about God, truths about heaven, truths about heavenly beings such as angels, we have to look to the Bible to find that truth. Now, the Bible isn't 100% clear for us on angels. For example, we don't know 
exactly where they come from. The story of creation doesn't give us a verse on day three, God created the angels. We don't get that story. We don't know how many of them there are other than in one place it references that there are myriads and myriads of angels in heaven, meaning there's just too many for us to count. So we don't know where they come from. We don't know how how many they are, but we do know a few things about them from what we read in the Bible, such as their nature as messengers. The word angel actually means messenger. It's like heaven's mail carrier. God sends a messenger from heaven, this heavenly being who greets another person. We see it all throughout the Bible. And oftentimes the person who's being greeted by the angel is afraid when they see the angel, but they're sent with a message from God. Now, I was wondering, like, why would not God just speak to them personally? Why wouldn't God just talk to them? Why does he have to send an angel so many times? And I began to consider that if I started hearing a voice from heaven, I would wonder, am I crazy? Is the pizza that I ate, did it have a different kind of mushrooms than I thought were on there? (laughs) And so we see in the Bible that God sends these messengers, these mail carriers, if you will, from heaven to people to deliver the things that he would want to say to them. We also see in the Bible that angels are very powerful beings. There are moments where they're used as agents of God's wrath, even moments where they are sent to execute a person on, in some instances, an entire army, and no human is able to stop them. So angels are very powerful beings. And we also learn that angels are astute observers of humanity. They've been watching us ever since We've been around. I mentioned that we don't know when they were created, but the story of Adam and Eve tells us that after they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, then they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, that God placed an angel there at its entrance to keep them from coming in. So they're at least as old as Adam and Eve. And as long as they've been around, they've been watching us and studying us and learning our behaviors and finding out what makes us tick. And they know lots of things. But in spite of them being incredibly powerful and incredibly wise and knowledgeable, there's one thing they do not know. And Peter tells us this thing they don't know, they stoop down from heaven and peer into earth with great desire to understand and know this one thing. And that one thing that they don't know is what is it like to be a child of God? What is it like to be someone who has been rescued from their sins, who knows and understands that God loves them? Angels can't understand that. They know that it's true, but they can't grasp it in the way that we can. And I would caution maybe some of you in the room who who might look to angels as spiritual guides and say that if we know more than the angels do, we probably don't want their spiritual guidance. We know more about spiritual things than angels do because we're actually God's children adopted into his family through our faith in Jesus. The angels don't have that. And because they don't, in all of their power and wisdom, they want to know what it's like to be one of us. Peter, writing this letter to a group of people who are experiencing intense persecution up to this point, the most intense and widespread that had ever broken out against Christians. Persecution just because the people are Christians. You can hear about it if you listen to the podcast. Pastor Jeff spoke on it last week and shared 
that the emperor Nero used them as a scapegoat and persecuted many people who followed Jesus simply because of their faith in him. Peter's writing this letter to those people who are experiencing that, attempting to encourage them that there's more beyond what happens in this life. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed literally means eulogize. He's saying eulogize the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in our culture, we think of that only happening at a funeral service. But eulogize simply means to speak well of. So Peter says, let's speak well of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, and it's not great, he doesn't call it great because it's awesome, though it is awesome. He's calling it great because it's big, it's expansive, it's huge, if you will. And there's plenty of room for lots of people to be gathered into his mercy. It's great mercy, and it's according to this great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. Now, this phrase, born again, can be a little weird if you're not a Christian. Quite frankly, it can be a little weird if you are a Christian. If we were to take that literally, we could consider that God is saying we should crawl back into our mother's womb and be rebirthed from there. I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds very uncomfortable for both parties. Jesus was the first person to mention this idea of being born again. And he mentions it to a religious leader whose name was Nicodemus, who came to him in the middle of the night. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to see God's kingdom, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says to him, do you want me to crawl back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I'm not speaking of a natural rebirth. I'm speaking of a spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus, if you want to see God's kingdom, you must be born from above, is what Jesus is literally saying. And this idea of being born from above is clarified by Peter here, who says that it is God who has caused us to be born again. This spiritual rebirth, it has nothing to do with a natural biological change. It has everything to do with the change in our spiritual heredity where I am no longer a child of my sinfulness and unrighteousness and a child of God's wrath, but I am now a child of God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, I have a different inheritance. Peter goes on to say this. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And he tells us that this inheritance is something that we can have a living hope for or a confident expectation that we're going to obtain it. And this confidence comes not from a knowledge of the future, but from a knowledge of the past. It's much like tomorrow, we all know that the sun is going to rise. And we don't know that the sun is going to rise because we have knowledge of the future. We, we don't know that the sun is going to rise because the weatherman has told us that it's going to rise. We know that the sun is going to rise tomorrow because the sun rose this morning. The sun rose yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And, and every day since the earth was formed, the sun has risen. And because the sun always rises, we know it's going to rise tomorrow. Peter says our confident expectation, our living hope in the inheritance that is ours as children of God is based not on our knowledge of the future, 
Not on the fact that Peter's telling it to us, but on a prior event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know and can believe that we have an inheritance coming to us as children of God. It has little to do with whether or not we can see into the future. It has everything to do with what we know has happened in the past, that Jesus was dead, but now is alive. And because that event happened, we have a living hope in this inheritance that is coming to us as God's children. In verse four, he says this inheritance is imperishable. It doesn't lose value. It doesn't depreciate. It's undefiled. It isn't tainted by ill-gotten gain. It's unfading. Its riches never diminish. It never goes away. And God is keeping it, guarding it, protecting it in heaven for us so no one can steal it. Nothing can rob us of it, this inheritance that God has stored up for us. But what is this inheritance? If you're like me, you picture a room full of gold coins that you can jump into and swim through. Like Scrooge. That's not what Peter's talking about at all. I think the answer as to what this inheritance is is found, in fact, in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. This inheritance that is kept in heaven for us that we can't see with our eyes, we can't touch with our hands, we can't describe it in detail because we don't know what it looks like. And he says of Jesus, you can't see him with your eyes, you can't touch him with your hands, but you believe in him. I can't imagine that there's anything better in heaven than Jesus. The inheritance Peter's talking about is Jesus. He says that one day we will see him. We can't see him right now. Our physical eyes, we can't see him right now, but one day we will. And when we do, the difficulties of this earth, the things that we've experienced, everything that we've gone through is going to pale in comparison to that moment. All the questions I had about life, all the fears and concerns that I have right now. Why do these people I know keep getting sick? Why did my cousin lose his job and now his family is in a difficult place? All of these things that we worry about, when we see Jesus, none of them will matter. They will all pale in comparison to looking in the eyes of Jesus. And Peter says, you can't see him right now but you love him. You can't see him right now, but you believe in him. He lauds those of us who have faith in him without having seen him. There's a story of right after he rose from the dead, he appeared to many of his closest friends. And when they saw that happen, they went and told others, we just saw Jesus alive. We saw him crucified. We saw them throw his body in a tomb. But I'm telling you, man, we just saw him alive 10 minutes ago. And many of them believed, and some of them didn't, one of whom was named Thomas. And Thomas said to the others, I refuse to believe that Jesus is alive unless I can see him, unless I can look at the nail prints in his hands, unless I can touch 
the holes where the nails were, where they hung him on the cross. Unless I can look at the wound in his side where they shoved a spear into him to make sure he was dead. Unless I can see Jesus in the flesh, I refuse to believe. And he turns around to leave and there's Jesus standing in front of him. Thomas got rickrolled. And Jesus said, Thomas, I'm never going to give you up. I'm never, never going to let you down. No, he didn't say that. Thomas sees Jesus and he falls to his knees and he says, you are my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, it's great that you believe me, but, but you believe I'm alive because you've seen me. The happiest people are those who believe I'm alive who have not seen me. If you're waiting to have faith in Jesus until he shows up to you in some tangible way, until he appears to you, until he gives you some proof of his resurrection, if you're waiting for that, you're probably not going to get it. Sorry, but he loves our faith. He wants us to believe in him. And if we have to see him to believe him, that's not faith at all. Our faith is precious to him. But we always want answers, though, don't we? We always want God to show us what's just beyond what we can see now. We want him to show us the future. If only I knew what the outcome of this choice would be, I'd always make the right decision. If only I knew whether or not to buy this house, everything would be okay. If only I knew whether or not my marriage was going to be okay, I'd invest more time into it. If only I knew whether or not to take this job, I would. And we, we wonder and wonder and wonder, and we want answers, but God doesn't give us answers. He gives us Jesus. And he says, if you follow my son, he will lead your life the best way you could possibly live it. And so while we hope and want all the answers and we, we want to be able to check all the boxes and say, I figured the things out, God says, I'm going to give you my son and you follow him by faith. And a whole lot is not going to make sense. But your faith is precious to me. And we can't see him with our eyes. We can't touch him with our hands. But there are ways that we can see him through our faith. Peter goes on to say in verse 10 that the prophets who prophesied about what we know now, about the grace of God, about the love of God, the prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, when they were prophesying that a man would come to the earth and suffer for the sins of the world and rescue us from our sins, when they were foretelling that event, they didn't know that that man's name would be Jesus. They didn't know when he would be born. They didn't know what he would look like. They just knew that God was telling them that in Bethlehem, as the prophet Micah said, some 500 years before Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, a child is going to be born who is going to be the king of my people. And Isaiah saying that one day this king would rule and reign and people from all over the world would worship him. They didn't know they were talking about Jesus. But we know that now. We get to see and know things that the prophets didn't even get to know. And so when we look through the Old Testament and see how all of this unfolded over time, we see Jesus. 
How can you deny that he's real when you look at all of the prophecies of his life that came true? We see him as we search the scriptures and study the Bible, and we see him as he has done miracles in people's lives as they're reading the Bible, the miracle of opening their eyes to who he is and the truth about him. But we also see him in our trials and our difficulties. Peter says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now this word trial, I often associate with the word tribulation because I've often heard the two used together, trials and tribulations. But the word tribulation means difficulty, distress, great trouble. The word trial actually just means examination or test, much like you would take a test to receive licensure from the state for your profession. It's to prove that you know what you say you know. Many of you know that I was homeschooled, and so my parents would probably say that I tested them more than they tested me. (laughs) But there were times that we were tested. Yes, homeschoolers do get tested, and one test in particular I remember was for our language class. And when asked, my brother and I, what language we would like to learn besides English, we both said German. We want to learn how to speak German. It's kind of weird for a nine and a 10 year old to want to learn how to speak German, but we wanted to speak German because our dad speaks German. He lived in Germany when he was in the army and he still speaks German today around the dinner table. And he'll say things like pass the chicken in German and my mom will ignore him (laughs) and look ahead and sometimes snarl. And he'll say, "Um, excuse me, could you please pass the chicken in German? And she'll keep ignoring him. And finally, she'll acknowledge his presence by saying something like, I won't give you the chicken until you start talking like a real person. Because apparently people who speak German aren't real people. But me and my brother wanted to learn how to speak German. And I remember one instance where our dad had taught us several words, several phrases, and he called us in for our test. We were going to have a German test, and we were really excited because we were pretty confident. We didn't know the exact words he was going to bring up, but we knew that we were going to know most of what he was going to say. And so he sits me and my brother Billy down, and he says, Billy, what is the German word for train station? And Billy says, Bonhoeff. That's right, Billy. Joe, what is the German word for post office? And I said, Postamp. That's correct as well. And he says, Billy, what is the German word for room? Silence. Billy's thinking about what the German word for room is, and I can see the wheels spinning. So I raise my hand, and he says, no, 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 this is Billy's question. Even when I was in elementary school, I would always get, anybody but Joe can answer this question. So now I'm in homeschool. There's two kids in the entire school, and it's still anybody but Joe can answer this question. And I'm like, oh, but I know it. I know it, Dad. And Billy's like, no, 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 no. I think I know it. And his nine-year-old brain is working really hard. The wheels are spinning, and he stands up proudly and with his best German accent, points to his bedroom, stomps his foot, and says, room. The German word for room is Zimmer. He's wrong. My dad lost his composure, 
closed the German book, set it aside. That concludes our test for today, and we never got a lesson again. So now my brother and I don't speak any language but English and a little broken German. Thanks to him for not passing the test. It's this kind of test, this kind of exam that Peter's talking about when he says you're grieved by various trials. You're grieved by various exams and tests. And he gives these tests a couple characteristics. One is that they're brief. He says, for a little while you're grieved by these tests. They do not last forever. It's going to end at some point. And as dark and macabre as this sounds, even if you die, it ends. There's life for us beyond that. They don't last forever. We can look back at the previous trials we experienced and we saw their expiration date. And the present trial has an expiration date. And we can take hope in that, that it does not last forever. He also says that they're varied. You've been grieved by various trials. Now, these people were experiencing trials that we can't even begin to understand. Nero was lighting his garden at night with the bodies of Christians set aflame. We don't experience trials quite like that. But everyone has a different trial and a different test. The things that I have to be examined upon are different from the things that you have to be examined upon. And all of us, they're different from the things that these Christians Peter was writing to have to be examined upon. We're all different and varied people, so it makes sense that the examinations of our faith would all be different and varied themselves. And they're all relative. See, the thing that I might be experiencing may be the worst thing I've ever experienced, but compared to what you're experiencing, it's but a drop in the bucket, but it's still pretty bad to me. They're relative, they're varied, but they have a purpose, Peter says. Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise to Jesus. The purpose of these trials is to test our faith. But why does God have to test my faith? Shouldn't he know whether or not my faith is genuine? He knows all things, right? He knows me better than I know myself. Why does he have to know if my faith is genuine? If he doesn't know that my faith is genuine, I wouldn't even want to worship him. But he knows so the test isn't for his knowledge. The test is for us. It's so we can know. It's so I can know that the next trial I go through, I'm going to make it through because I made it through this one. I'm going to make it through this one because I made it through the last one. Just as the sun came up today, it's coming up tomorrow. He wants us to have confidence in our faith so that we can say, no matter what comes, I know God loves me. No matter what comes, I know I'm his child. No matter what comes, I know that he's rescued me from his sins and I'm not condemned for my previous behaviors. He wants us to have confidence with him before that. 
And the way that he works that out for us is through these trials. He says that it tests the genuineness of our faith that is more precious than gold that perishes. The interesting thing about gold is that it actually does not perish. You can break it down molecularly, but you cannot destroy it. And so I don't think Peter is confused here. They say that all of the gold that's ever been mined is still in existence somewhere, whether in the tomb with Cleopatra or perhaps some of her gold is adorning your wrist on a bracelet right now. But I don't think Peter's confused about the longevity of gold. I don't think he's confused when he says gold perishes. I think he's, I think he's comparing natural gold to the treasure that awaits us in heaven, to this inheritance we have, who is Jesus. This reminds me of the story of a, a man the Bible calls a rich young ruler. He was a young man who had many possessions. And he comes to Jesus, he rolls up in his Bugatti, takes off his Dolce and Gabbana glasses, swaggers up to the Son of God and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? Jesus, unimpressed, says a typical rabbi's answer. Well, you should love God with all your heart. You should love your neighbor as yourself. You should honor your father and your mother. And the man says, Jesus, I've done all these things since I was a young man. Jesus says to the man who has it all, you still lack one thing. You, the man who has it all, you still lack one thing. You should go and sell all that you have give to the poor and come and follow me and you'll gain treasure in heaven. The young man puts his glasses back on, gets back into his car and drives away very sorrowful, the Bible says, because he had great possessions. Jesus' point is not that possessions are evil. Jesus' point is not that you should give all that you have and sell it. Jesus' point is not that if you have a lot, it's wrong. Jesus' point is what compares to that which awaits you in heaven. Your treasures that you have on the earth are not treasure at all. They will perish, even imperishable gold. But the inheritance awaiting for us is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's Jesus who lives and reigns forever and ever. The stuff I have in my life, what is it worth compared to knowing Jesus? Maintaining my image, what is it worth compared to knowing who Jesus is? Maintaining a certain social status, what is it worth compared to knowing who Jesus is? All of the things in this life will fade away, but Jesus lasts forever. And knowing him and loving him and believing in him, though we do not see him with our eyes, is precious to God, more precious than all of our possessions that we have in the world. He goes on in verse 9 to explain the why of our faith. Why? We believe why we have faith in him. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation 
of your souls. It's interesting that he does not say the salvation of your lives. Because Jesus did not come to save our lives. Now, many of us could say, Jesus saved my life. The path that I was headed on was a destructive one, and he rescued me from it and pulled me out of that and thereby saved my life. But he didn't come to save our lives. He came to save our souls that will live forever with him and receive the inheritance that is Jesus. So this means that, that my comfort or discomfort doesn't matter in light of what awaits me as a child of God. It means that an easy life or a difficult life doesn't matter in light of what awaits me as a child of God. He came to save our souls. You could literally translate that phrase, heal your psyche. For those of you who know me, you know that I could use a little psyche healing. And I'm sure we all can, especially when encountered with the difficulties and stresses of life and the things that surround us that seem impossible to get through. And when we feel like we're breaking and that we want to run away and that we want to flee, I just have to get out of the room and go outside, catch a breath of fresh air. I just have to leave everything behind. Whatever is breaking around us, Peter says, your faith in the hope ahead of you can heal your psyche. When your mind is falling apart, have faith in what awaits you. There's healing there. It's beyond a rescuing from our sins. It's a healing in our minds so that we can see him by faith and love him and have hope that there's more to what we can experience right now. I'm going to pray for us and the band is going to return. And, and when they do, we'll have a few more minutes to, to spend time worshiping Jesus. There will also be people in the gallery who want to pray with you if you need prayer for something. And during this time, we set it aside so that we can take it and reflect on the things that we've heard and so that we can set our eyes on Jesus. We can't see him with our physical eyes, but we see him with eyes of faith that are encouraged by the hope that lays before us. So as we consider the things in our life that we need to pray about and that we need to pray for and the difficulties that are surrounding us all around, as we consider these things, know that they will not last forever and there's something much greater beyond it. Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to this earth to save our souls, to heal our psyche, to bring complete restoration of our relationship with you and adopt us into your family. I thank you that because we're now part of your family, we get that inheritance that is coming to your children, that wonderful, glorious inheritance named Jesus. I thank you that one day, Jesus, we will see you and that our faith here and now will have been worth it. I pray that you would strengthen the faith that we have, though at times it may be weak, pray that you would strengthen our resolve 
to continue following you no matter what. We thank you for that, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.